Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern-day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years, and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from, and what drives them forward. I think there's space, and and if there's not space to talk about it, then we need to make it. I just never found this way of expressing myself until I realised, oh, you just need to create it yourself. And I think I really needed that. I needed to be told that. In this episode, I sit down with Gabby Edlin, founder and CEO of Bloody Good Period, a London-based charity seeking to provide menstrual supplies to people who can't afford them. Her story started by facing the stigma head-on and will hopefully conclude with her organisation not being needed when I'm sure she'll go back to being a stand-up comedian. It was a fascinating discussion, and I was surprised and delighted to be the first man to interview her about it. This was recorded in our studios in Shoreditch. Welcome. Thank you. Gabby, um, Two Stories of Growth. Very uh, excited to have you on the show. Um, And... Why don't we start at the beginning? Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, and what some people might know you for. So I guess uh, what people know me for is Bloody Good Period. And we're a charitable project that pr- uh, provides period supplies for asylum seekers, refugees and people who can't afford them. But um, the organisation's more than that in that we work to normalise periods and change policy so that we effectively don't have to exist. And I know a lot of charities say that, but we really work very, very hard so that I can like just move on in about five, ten years. That's yeah. the plan? That's the real, that's, actual that's, plan, strategy. success is to not be needed. Yeah, success is, is, is being able to say, like, we were part of that movement which no longer needs to exist because things have changed yeah so and it's hugely admirable and um obviously needed and you know why i was really keen to talk uh, and get you on the show um so let just map it out like firstly the scale of the problem um and then secondly what drove you to really i mean just do something about it So I guess the problem can be sort of put into sort of categories. Mm -hmm. So the first problem is the immediate need for supplies. And so we work almost specifically, but probably, you know, we work about 95% with asylum seekers and refugees. So they're people that have come to this country um, as is their human right, having fled war or political persecution or sexual persecution. And they arrive in this country and they're allowed to make a claim for asylum which means safety, basically. And what happens then is that they are given £37.75 a week to live on, and that is it. Not allowed to work, not allowed to... I mean, even their volunteering time is limited. And that is such a tiny amount, especially living in London. Um, I think most people couldn't even just spend that per day, but it's per week, basically. And so there are lots of drop-in centres that have been set up by individuals, sort of like food banks, but specifically for asylum seekers all around London and the UK. And I started volunteering at one and discovered that 
people weren't supplying um, period supplies, even though they were supplying, you know, in quotes, the essentials. And yet half of the people there were women or people who menstruate. And when I asked about it, when I was like, are you going to think about supplying these? Because it was something that was on my mind. That was where I started to realise the larger problem, which was that no one wanted to talk about periods. And it wasn't that people were actively... So, so great people who had set up these, you know, these drop-ins and were sort of really wanting to work towards, you know, helping asylum seekers really, you know, find safety and, and warmth in this country. It wasn't that they were bad people or they didn't want to think about this. It was really that we just don't talk about periods. It's not a normal thing to talk about. It's a part of the body that is normal, but they have got this, this like stigma and silence and shame all around it meant that even these brilliantly kind people were not thinking about it or might have thought about it, but didn't want to deal with it. And so that, that's the two sort of issues, really. The one is that there are people who, because they have so little funds, they aren't, uh, they aren't able to access products and that essentially can keep people prisoner in their home. So some of the women we've spoken to talk about how until they were getting the products that they needed, they would just sit in their house because they were too afraid to leak. Someone le leaked on the bus once. Um, and also someone said that she... She said she didn't even want to sit on her couch during her period because she was afraid she'd leak on the couch and get evicted by her landlord for being unhygienic. And that's just the kind of thing that... That doesn't need to happen. Mm -hmm. Um especially in the UK where we have the NHS and, you know, we get condoms free. There's toilet paper free in every public place. So why isn't this item that is so essential free for people who need it as well? So that, yeah, they sort of obviously link to each other, but, but the main problem is that still people don't want to talk about periods. And I realise now that we're in a very different space from three years ago when we started because people actually do want to talk about it. It's in the media all the time. It's amazing. Mm. There's this huge movement... But we're still not there where the people in power are really getting the point that this is... A period's not going to kill you. Like, it's not. It's not a health concern. It is a normal bodily function. And that almost adds to the stigma because it's not something that you go and get sorted out. It's something that you just have to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of almost takes away the urgency, maybe, of why we need to deal with it. But to me, it's still a really urgent problem. It's all about inequality, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the 70s, and, and stop me while I bang my feminist drum, but in the 70s, uh, Gloria Steinem wrote a piece that was called If Men Could Menstruate. And it talked about how, you know, there'd be um, competitions for who had the heaviest flow and they'd be free everywhere and, you know, men would boast about their super plus tampon and that kind of thing. And... You know, even though, you know, it's reductive and it's silly, it's true in that we've had to keep it secret for millennia. And we're now really getting to the point where, happily, we're saying, like, we've had enough of this. Like, it's just a bodily function. Can we just get on with it and be allowed to live our lives without having to manage it out of existence so that we can fit into normal society, mm. basically? Um, yeah, unbelievable. And... Um, so this was three years ago? Yeah, that almost was, exactly. That's yeah. the beginning of the campaign? Yeah. And you know, was there a particular moment? I mean, you were working in um, volunteering. Um, but you know, what was that, that moment of inception of like, actually, I've got to do something about this? So I'm a creative by nature, I guess. And 
I did a master's a few years ago, and this was like a, two years before, or a year before, that I came up with it at St. Martin's, which was all about design for social change. And so that was already my thought process. It was already okay. like, here's a problem, how do we solve it? Um, I was working at an art school just around the corner here, actually, at the Royal Drawing School, just as a sort of coordinator of kids' programmes. Um, and I was a nanny as well. And so my brain was not being engaged in any way, especially like my creativity was, I was bored out of my mind, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> you know, it was, the jobs were fine, but I was bored. Yeah. And so as soon as the something sparked where I was like, oh, no one's dealing with this. That's, I started to almost, I guess, something started cooking in my brain. And I started talking to to people about it and saying, do you think this could be a thing? And a lot of people said to me, oh, I think if it, if, if it was a thing, it would have been done. And to me, like, as a creative, that's like the ultimate, like, <laughs> that really, like, pushes me. It's like, yeah, but it's not. It's not been done. Like, you know, and, and loads of people that I spoke to as well were like, yeah, do it. Give it a go. And it was really scary because you're sort of putting an idea out that's not only is it, is it just something that you thought of yourself and therefore it's scary and you want to hold on to it, don't let anyone see? It's also this really taboo subject. And by asking someone about it, you're essentially saying, look at me, I'm a human being, <laughs> which is sort of, I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's, it, rem it reminds you that, that I am a menstruating woman when I talk about it and it still feels awkward, you know, and it was even more so at the time to have to talk about it like that. But that sort of pushed me even further. Um... And once I started, it, was, it really, it started with a post on Facebook. It wasn't a campaign that I started. It was a favour. It was asking my friends and family to send me a couple of packs of pads. And that was really it. It wasn't saying we need to campaign for free products. It was like, I'll sort this out because no one else is. Um, and I've since discovered like there were other places organising in a similar way. But what I didn't feel that existed was somewhere that talked about periods with a frankness and an honesty and comedy and my background at my master's was all about getting men to think about feminism through comedy we made like a, a sketch show in a pub like that kind of thing very like sort of typically ladsy you know really pushing it as as far to the binary of gender as you possibly could but that was what sort of got me thinking like you can't you can't talk about a subject like this without being humorous um and that, that, that was sort of all this sort of coming together in my brain about like, well, we need to do it like this. No one else is doing it like that. I think we should do it. You know, this is the voice that I want to have. And then one day I was just, I just suddenly thought, oh, I'm going to call it Bloody Good Period. And great, that's how it happened. Great name, by the yeah. way. <laughs> I think I called it Bloody Good at first. And then I realised that it needed to have the word period in because that was the problem that people had with saying that word. But yeah, that that's... That all sort of happened in the space of a couple of weeks, I think, where I just suddenly was like, ah, oh, this is how it's going to work. And I, I'm probably the world's worst designer, like, prop, like actually, like, doing things on Photoshop. I'm, I'm terrible. It's like I have the design instinct, but none well, of the wait, skill. Wait, you're working at a drawing school? Yeah, I can draw. I can draw, but so you I can't draw. design. Give me a piece of paper and I'll draw. <laughs> and give, I've got an idea... But actually putting it into practice, like, I don't have that skill. I never went to design, you know, I never was a graphic designer or anything. And so I made this horrific logo. It was just so bad. It was so, so bad. Um, and it's still, it's still out there because I think it's important for people to see, like, what things come from. 
but it yeah so I just started putting stuff out there and like looking back it's so bad and I knew it was bad at the time but I was just like well the idea is good right so and then what I hoped would happen and what has happened is that designers then came to me and said can I sort this out for you <laughs> I was like yes it's yours and yeah it, that's been really helpful actually mm. and testament to a good idea versus so. a bad logo yeah um couple of points and is this the first time you've done something like this it's the first time I've done something well it's the first time it's worked what does that mean so it's not it's not the first entrepreneurial thing I've done okay so when I was at uni I made jewelry and sold it I made I used to like find I don't know like bits of dollhouse or bits of stone or whatever and I made jewellery and I would hold jewellery parties in my flat in Newcastle and like random people would come from uni and I would sell it to them and then I made cards for a bit um I made um there was a real niche for because I'm Jewish and live in North London and there was a real like lack of actually nice Jewish greetings cards so like congrats on your bar mitzvah or mazel tov on your wedding or something and whenever I looked for something, there was nothing. So I used to make them myself. And then one day I went into like a kosher deli and said, do you want to sell these? I hadn't even made them. I had a photo of it on my phone. And this woman was like, yeah, I need an order of 30 by next week. So I did that for a while. Um, but I just didn't really care about it. Like I enjoyed the making and I enjoyed the idea of having something that I'd created put out there. And like they were sold in Selfridges, the cards and stuff. Like it, you know, it, I feel like it could have taken off, but... The whole time, I think I was just thinking, I'm not changing anything by doing this. Mm. It's just some nice cards. It's just, I did wedding invitations as well. Um, but this was the first time that actually something that I did, I really genuinely cared about it. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't putting things into the world that didn't need to be there. I don't know if this is like, I don't know if other people feel this, but like at St. Martin's, there was a real sense of no more stuff. And what I don't fully agree with, that completely I think there's a real sort of there's a real you know good point to it that we don't actually need stuff we need ideas we need concepts we need ways of doing things that are differently so put your creativity towards that mm. if you can rather than creating new wedding invitations so was that a testament to St Martin's in terms of that purpose drive I or is that something you've always had I always had it. I always had it. And I always had that drive to do something to, like, to be good good for humanity, I guess, in a really pompous way. I mean, since when? Forever, really. Yeah. yeah, I think I've always had a massive sense of injustice. Like, you know, I think, you know, look, as a child, I genuinely couldn't understand a lot of the time why girls weren't treated as well as boys or weren't considered as good. I went to an all-girls school all my life, so... Where was that? In Manchester. So I really just... The way that I understood talent and sort of achievements was that it didn't matter what gender you were, it just mattered what kind of person you were. So there were no gendered subjects for me growing up because girls at my school played football, girls at my school were really talented scientists, but then, you know, I was very much more into English lit and art and you know, what might be considered typically feminine subjects now, now that I'm out of the school world. But at the time, I just understood it as just what I like. And so, yeah, coming out of 
of school was a real like sense of, oh, not everybody feels this way. Um, and also I grew up in a Jewish youth movement, which is, I was going to say it's not as sad as it sounds, but it is actually. We were a bunch of massive nerds who just did a lot of like social action stuff. It, it, it's called Have On Him Draw and it was like well known for creating creative men like Sasha Baron Cohen and that kind and David Baddiel but you never seem to hear about the women who come out of it so that was almost like even though that was my creative upbringing there was also a sense of injustice in that as well um but so I think going to St Martin's that's what really gave me the tools to be able to understand what to do with all of that and what to do with all of these like thoughts and and concepts and feelings and actually how to create an intervention basically it was I did it over two years and it was like the best two years ever in terms of how I think now but I think this that part of me was always there I was mm -hmm. like a I used to do like body image activism about like f seven eight years ago and there was just I just never found the thing that fit and so it can look like if you've just met me that my that this is what I do and what I've always done and sometimes it just works, but there are legions of things behind me that, you know, I'd rather nobody ever saw, but I think it's what has made me be able to do this well. Yeah, and what defines you in terms of that prior experience or, um, you know, prior relations? Um, touch a bit on education in terms of as it sounds, uh, an enjoyable, a defining, you know, time in your school years. Where and how would you want that to change in terms of, you know, the current education set up? Um, and, I mean, I am father to two girls. Um, how old? Six and three. And, cool. you know, year two at school for the eldest. And... Yeah, very similar approach. Like she loves her football, you know, she's down the skate park. Um, and, you know, even by saying that, you know, that shouldn't even be something to say. Like, of mm. course, it's not about whether she's a girl or a boy. She loves football. Yeah. Um, which I've always advocated and, you know, but it's there is still that stigma. And I think this obviously goes bigger than your, you know, your current... Um, your know, campaign um, but it's I don't know maybe get your thoughts on the general the system as a as a whole uh, and really maybe some areas for improvement so I'll come back to school but the first thing that I think of is like media has a whole lot to answer for mm. so when I was a nanny I looked after among so there were five children in two different families and in one of the families, there was two boys and a little girl. And when I started there, the two boys were obsessed with Spurs. They were six and three when I started. All they cared about was Spurs. All they wanted to do was watch football or play football or anything. And as the little girl who was nine months when I started grew up, she too started to be obsessed with football because that's what her brothers were. She played football at a little club when she was about two. She used to watch it with them. You know, there wasn't, there was nothing gendered in it. And then when she started to speak, she was, I think she must have been about three. She, we were walking home from school and she said to me, girls don't play football. And I was like... Wait, what age was she? She was about three. And I, like, I, but you know, it feels like it's such a cliche thing that you hear, but I remember it so vividly. And I said to her, like, Lucy, you play football, you're a little girl. 
And at the time, I also played football terribly, but I played it. I mean, I was so... Design and football, terribly. <laughs> I was so bad at football that in the end I gave up because the learning curve felt too steep for me at, like, 32 to try, to try and learn. But she knew that I played football, she played football. So where, why did girls so wait, not play football? Who, did, who had told her that no girls can't play football? No one had told her. She'd seen it on TV. That was the thing. That was the only thing that I could think of. It was just before the Women's Cup started being shown a lot more. Mm-hmm. But she'd, not, she'd never seen on TV a girl play football. That was basically what it was. It must have... I don't know what else to think. Because... It doesn't matter if you're playing it. I was talking to, I was actually talking to my boyfriend about this the other day and saying how, he was saying how he didn't understand how that could be because she should have understood herself to be playing football and therefore girls play football. But he said he used to play with dolls and then quickly learned he wasn't supposed to play with dolls. And he didn't learn that boys play with dolls because I'm a boy and I play with dolls. He learned boys don't play with dolls, therefore I am wrong. And I think that's what she learned. And I just, you know... I want to cry for these little girls who just want to be able to do just a normal activity. Um, but then also we really, when I feel like there's a real problem with like kids, especially little girls, because we want them to be able to do everything and to have everything that boys do, we then minimise anything that's feminine. So, you know, I've got a few friends with kids who, if they're little girls start wanting to have something pink or want to play with dolls or want to be a princess, they really try and get rid of that. And that's not the problem. It's the problem that we're not letting boys do that. Like, there's nothing wrong with pink and princesses. Like, they have their own power, you know, and it's exciting. It look, who doesn't want glitter? You know, it looks great. But, yeah, we really minimise that in, instead of being like, you can be both. You can be either, you can be neither. Um... Yeah, I don't feel like we're talking enough about putting boys in pink, putting boys as as sort of the heroines, I guess. We're letting girls be heroes, but we're not letting boys be heroines. Interesting. Yeah. And where does that, uh, you know, fast forward to bloody good periods and, you know, the gender, you know, male voice or the importance of the men in this conversation? I mean... There's a popular theory that men hate periods and or men won't talk about them. And I just, I don't believe it. I think, I mean, we have a podcast at Bloody Good where we talk to men about periods. It's called Stay in the Room because boys are taken out of the room when periods come up. So there is no wonder that men don't have the language to talk about it. It's, it of course, that's why it is. It's not that men are terrible humans who don't, who don't believe that, you know, women should have rights and women should have access to healthcare. It's, they literally, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, as a man sitting in front of me, there's literally no language for it. You know, women for some reason, and I'm being completely binary, and there are, of course, shades in between, but women have the ability to talk about issues like prostate cancer and male mental health because we've been sort of socialised to talk about both of our, you know, situations. Whereas, because men have been repeatedly taken out the room or been told to to leave the room or been allowed to leave the room when period discussion comes up then of course you know and but I think it is changing and one thing that I really was keen on doing with the well not keen on I was absolutely adamant about with the branding of BGP was that it wasn't pink and that's not because I I love the colour pink and I love I feel like if it was pink I would make everything pink but because 
it needed to appeal to everybody. It needed to be a human rights organisation rather than a girls' organisation. Mm-hmm. And it needed branding so hugely important that you need to be able to identify, you need to see it and think, oh, I like that style. And I think any sort of pink would just automatically put most men off. And women as well, actually. A lot of women have told me they really feel like it's a refreshing thing to not be faced with another baby pink logo. Mm. Um, But that's how we try and bring men into the conversation. But I ultimately think a lot of it is, it's the responsibility of interested men to, to take it up themselves and... I think this is maybe the first podcast I've done with a man. I think it's always been women who want to talk about it. And in fact, once I was invited onto a podcast where there's a male and female host and the male host just decided not to join because he thought he wouldn't have anything to add. And I was so horrified because I was like, well, of course you do. Like, we, it's, it's a body, it's, it's rights, it's humanity. But yeah, I think, I think there's space. And, and if there's not space to talk about it, then, you know, we need to make it. Or, you know, men who are interested in it need to come along and say, here's what I want to be able to say about it. So how, how would, not representing all men, but <laughs> being a man in the room, mm. I mean, how can they do that? I mean, how could someone contribute, participate, get involved, The first thing that I always say is men need to be doing the admin. Like, <laughs> meaning, meaning, we do not need another movement that is going really well with and have a man come and stand in front of it and be like, "I'm here to save you, ladies." There's literally an Onion article about that, like, <laughs> "Man saves feminism" or something like that. But it it bears saying because I think so often it doesn't matter. I'm not. It's not just men and women. It's it's white people and racism. It's um you know, uh, cis people and and the trans movements. Like, we don't need a saviour in this movement. We're already saving it. We just need help. So we need, you know, I think if you are, you know, you're a self-proclaimed feminist man, then you donate to the, you know, you donate to Bloody Good Periods so that we can literally do our work and you amplify voices. So we've got a, a, a a good base of male followers as well who, you know, they've been with us for a long time and they will retweet and stuff to their male followers. And I, um, I was talking about this at a talk I did on Tuesday. I sort of have inadvertently prepped a lot of my male friends with a a sort of statement of like how to talk about periods or (laughs) what to do when periods come up. Um, what is that statement? I suppose it's something like, guys, it's just a bodily function and we don't really understand it, but, you know, at least we can be empathetic or, uh, you know, if, if someone says a girl's being moody because she's on a period, well, actually, you'll probably find that she's moody pre her period <laughs> rather than on her period. And, you know, all of these different things that I literally I'm saying constantly to my male friends and I'm always sort of repeating on our Stay in the Room podcast as well so that these things sort of get through. Because I think, I really do think it is not the fault of individual men at all. I think it is society that has, it is beneficial for men to not be interested in this. You know, it is, it is not, you know, especially, so for example, like um, a period supply company, like always, if I can talk about brands on here, it is not beneficial for them, for men to be interested in period activism because their whole sort of ethos is you hide it and you hide it from men 
So it's all about being discreet, being slim, being silent, being, you know, camouflaged. And that's because we don't want men to know about it or each other, basically. So the idea that men might be interested or just absolutely fine with periods would mean that they would have to go and have a whole new marketing scheme where it was like, yeah, no, it's fine, just leave it out on the counter. Or like, these look really, these are really nice patterns because we know everyone likes patterns. You know, that kind of thing, rather than it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make a sound when you open it in the toilets. Like, that actually exists. It actually exists, like tampon wrappers that don't rustle. For, you know. Wow. So, yeah. It is a real act of resistance, I think, resistance to be a man and to be open about periods, basically, and to, to be okay with it. And I, I know that these men exist. Like, I know them, you know, and I think there's, um, there's a, a, an academic called Sally King who writes this blog called Menstrual Matters, and she talks about how it's a weak taboo. So, yes, periods are a taboo, but the second you talk about it, that taboo's gone. You know, that's not to say the stigma's gone, but the taboo's gone. It's fine, we've all talked about it now. We all know that people have periods and we're fine with it, you know. I think, it, and it's that easy for men as well. Mm. Well, that's why we're here. Yes. Um, coming back to that stigma, and I think that is certainly, you know, the root of, I mean, a root of the, it's, it's a problem, it is a problem. Yeah. Um, and... You know, again, coming is is it the education? Is it, I'm just trying to dig into like some of the source, mm-hmm. um, which are you know some of it's obvious, some of it's less obvious, but you know, rather than reflecting, but more looking forward as to you know how we change it. And, and I know this is the core part of your your mission, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm just to articulate that a little bit more. I think yeah, it would be interesting. Yeah, so there's there's no denying that menstruation is stigmatised. And that has... It has been... The, the, the idea of it has been stigmatised since time began, almost. I mean, from when we have records, it's biblical that it's a stain, it's a curse, it's, um, you know, women have to go away and not be part of society in this red tent until they've stopped menstruating. It's It's enshrined in, like, religious law. And... So it's always been there, but that doesn't mean it always has to stay there. But it's not just religion. It's also things like just branding, like I talked about a minute ago, is really holds the stigma because I think there's this, like, real fear from um, these companies that if you make this product, which has been, been sold on shame, no longer shameful, will people buy it? And the answer is, I don't know. They might use reusables, I don't know. But... I mean, like, Bodyform did it, for example. They made the first advert that looked like it had actual period blood in, and there was rejoicing, you know? So I think it's, I think it's a real fear on the side of companies. Um, so that, there's responsibility there? A huge amount. A hu- the, the reason that I think there is a huge amount of responsibility on these brands is because... So this is in addition to the media? Yes, yeah. So this is brands in particular, and I guess the media as well. But brands have capitalized on this shame they've created this shame basically or at least have you know really dug it in and now because of all of our work in activist movements getting periods on the agenda making them normal talking about period poverty they're now using this you know always have a huge marketing campaign called end period poverty like you're not going to end period poverty like they won't they can't do it it's not in their interest so 
to me, it's, it is, yet yeah, it now becomes their responsibility because the reason that we have period poverty when someone can't afford products is one of the huge reasons is because of the shame associated with periods as well as poverty. And have you, you've approached the brands about this? You're talking to them? Uh, we've talked a bit to them. I, we work with smaller brands and I'm not ready to be these brands marketing CSR campaign, basically. I think we're better working on the outside from them for now. We're going to be working with Procter & Gamble now for um, the task force of the government which we're on. Um, but up until now, it has felt much more useful to be pushing from the outside. And we know they're listening because, you know... They have to. They do. That's what you do. And, you know, we know that... You know, I have sort of friends who are in marketing and stuff, and I know that whenever they're, they have their sort of mood boards, like we're front and centre in their mood boards. So that's, that's what I want. I don't want to go in there and consult with them and for them to be able to say, we're working with Bloody Good Period. I want them to be able to say, we need to work harder for Bloody Good Period to work with us. And I think the most interesting thing is they've never, ever been in touch with us. You know, they know that, um, they, they know where we are, you know? And I'm not willing to go to them and say, let me help you. I haven't got enough time as it is. But um, that's just my tactic. I'm not, not saying it is the tactic mm. for um, influencing brands, but it seems, you know, it's worked with body form. That's all I can say. You know, they've taken a lot of our work and I don't mean that in a, they've thieved it I mean they have they've they've taken what we've said and they've made it into a different advert mm. which should go some way to start changing the narrative around menstruation yeah agreed um just let's go back to a little bit more about you know the size of the problem and really you know the size of we could call it an organization you know your movement your mm. your um uh, your business. Um, just to touch on that in terms of where, how, who, uh, you know, you show up. So in terms of our organisation, um, for the first year it was me, just literally just me, and then a few people sort of helping here and there. And now we... So I'm, I'm the CEO and we've got four members of staff um, and three trustees. So I guess that's a team of... God... Eight. eight, sure. <laughs> That's like a solid team of eight. That Maths, we're... football, design. Okay, right, I've got it. Maths I can do if I've got a pencil and paper, same as drawing. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's eight of us and then we've got hundreds of volunteers. So it's really sort of, it's really solid organisation, but we're also incredibly small. Um, but then there's also the movement around, so there's different... Um, there's like different organisations like us. So there's like the Red Box Project and there's Free Periods, which probably everyone knows about, which is Amica George, who was 17 when she started a petition. And there is um, a few like new brands that have come out. And basically we're this movement that we will talk to each other and work together. But the size of the problem is, I don't even know, because there is no research. There is two pieces of research so this is I'm talking about period poverty in particular, which is what um, when people can't actually afford the products. It's not about just the stigma or not just the stigma. It's not about everything around it. But talking about actual period poverty, there are two very, very small studies with a thousand girls in school each. And they found that one in 10 uh, 
girls and children couldn't afford products or couldn't access products when they need them. So that's a really big number. Where was that survey? One of them was done by Plan International, or Plan UK, the charity, and one was done by PHS. UK-based? Yeah, both UK-based. Where in the UK? I don't know. I don't know, because it's small. I think it's London. I mean, like, it's tiny. There's, there's been no research, nothing. I mean, we're now starting to be able to push. There's more coming, and we're now working with the government to be able to actually produce better research. Mm. But there doesn't seem to have been anything about women, anything about refugees and asylum seekers, anything about the stigma that actually affects grown women, um, you know, people in the workplace. So we're working on a project called Bloody Good Employers where we're sort of creating sort of... Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, sort of kite mark where um, workplaces are able to make life okay for people who menstruate. It's not putting the onus on the worker at all. It's putting the onus on the bosses to say, look, you're always going to have people who menstruate in your office. How about you deal with it? Mm -hmm. And is that, you know, it's... So how would they do that? So one of the things is, is, is... it's really HR-based, but taking a good look at, like, how you talk about sick leave. So if you're someone who suffers from really bad cramps every single month, if you're taking two, three days off every month, you're going to come up against disciplinary procedures, probably, because you can't really get a doctor's note every month for three days of period pains. But yet they're so common. So it would be about looking at how you can best accommodate that. I mean, to speak for myself, when I get really bad period pains, I can work. I just need to be, you know, either on a couch or um, sort of dosed up on paracetamol and with a hot water bottle. And that's not always possible in the workplace. Um, And then looking at how, um, whether uh, companies provide products for people that need them. Because it's not, uh, you know, it's it's not just about poverty. It's not that you can't afford these products. It's that, you know, periods aren't clockwork. And often you'll come on, without even thinking, you know, you would not have realised it was going to be that day. And if you're stuck in the toilet having to wrap toilet paper around your underwear because you've got nothing else there, like, what does that say about a boss who can't even think about that for their staff? You know, it's they're so cheap to supply. So it's that kind of thing. And then also just really... I mean, there's a lot of talk about menstrual leave. That isn't what people really want, I don't think. You know, I don't need time off for my period. I just need to be able to not feel judged for having a hot water bottle or not feeling particularly sparky, you know, at a certain point in the month. I think we've, you know, we've created the workplace that works by men's cycles, basically. Men's hormonal cycles rather than women's hormonal cycles, which is more monthly. I think men's, I might be wrong with the science here, but it's it's more daily. Um, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work for half the population at some point, you know. So that's what we're working on with Bloody Good Employers. And, it, and it's, it's tough because it, it is about changing an entire way of working. But, you know, we've been really, like, really surprised by how many big brands are really on board mm. and actually really want to do it and really want to be able to change the way that they work so that people feel more valued. Because that's about what it is, isn't it? You know, you feel va- if you feel like your workplace cares about you as a human you work harder. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And that's why it caught my eye. And um, definitely something... You know, we've done a couple of simple versions of that, but, yeah, would I mean, it's not about loving to do more, like we will do more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being a team, predominantly women, mm. um, but also in our co-working space, which is 
pretty equally balanced. Mm. It's, you know, it's not about being expected, but it definitely is something that is needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think it's, a, it's tiny changes, really, yeah. that make massive difference to just the way that people feel understood and, and heard. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it, it, it should be good. Like, it, it should make a difference, I hope. Yeah. yeah. Taking it back again to maybe some of the, uh, you know, the founding energy for this entrepreneurial spirit. Um, maybe talking about your family a bit and your childhood and, you know, maybe preschool, around school. Um, you know, again, it sounds like that drive and purpose has always been there, but, mm. you know, more of the entrepreneurial end. Was this from your your folks or we they I, maybe touch on some of that uh, early I, years i'm not sure i'm not sure i grew up in quite like a traditional jewish family my dad's a dentist although my mom's pretty entrepreneurial she's she started lots of different things like she's a jazz singer and a stress management consultant and you know was a therapist and has done lots of different things so i suppose i get that side from her um but it was it it was never really an option. I didn't really know about this word entrepreneur until, or social entrepreneur, whatever I actually am, until I think like uni, post uni. I didn't know that you started things yourself. I thought I wanted to be a fashion designer. I used to draw clothes all the time. It's all I did from the age of about five to 17. I was genuinely committed. You know, I spent a week in London at Central St. Martins when I was 16 doing a fashion design course, like, as my Christmas present. And, you know, I was obsessed with that. I didn't know that you... I, I, I didn't know that you created things that weren't there. I just... I don't know. I think that there wasn't that element for me in school at all. I went to a very academic school where you became a doctor, lawyer. Um, what else were you allowed to be? I don't know, but I remember going to the careers teacher and saying fashion design and she said that's not a very good career <laughs> Can you, like, I, I still can't believe it um that's awesome yeah and actually the um the designer who sarah burton who worked for alexander mcqueen and created princess kate whoever her name is kate middleton's wedding dress she went to my school so yeah. apparently it is an okay career um but not for me apparently um but yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't something that was really on the table. I really don't think it was. Um, but your parents were supportive of obviously your, I mean, direction decision. Yeah, I think they realised. Really I mean, yeah. outside of the boundaries or constrictions of school, it's yeah, you know, it's what's in the home and you know, what your parents allow you to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, outside of um, outside of school, I. I didn't like school. Like, I, I didn't really like it. I didn't like the boundaries. I didn't like the lessons that I had to go to. I didn't like exams. Um, I got on with it because I had to. I didn't think there was any choice. But I think it was pretty clear to my parents from an early age that I was very creative and that was all I was ever going to do. And you got brothers and sisters? Three sisters. Two are teachers. One's training to be a psychologist. So we're not a particularly creative family. Like, my uncle's an artist and my grandma was artistic, but it's not its not really something that was sort of a family thing. It was very much like... I mean, like, my sisters get, get you know, annoyed with me because it's my 
artwork all over the house like no one else I think like there's two like pictures from when they were little but like yeah it's all my artwork I was the creative one which you know was uh, it was nice for me it probably wasn't nice for anyone else if they ever tried to draw anything I was like no my thing um <laughs> oldest or younger sister second oldest I am okay yeah but um I mean, that's not to say they're not creative, but it was just, it was clear from early on, I think that's all I would ever do. And my, my parents were really supportive of me being a fashion designer. They really were. And I think it was because they understood what that was. And then um, I ended up getting into photography and ended up doing um, a year of that at Northumbria Uni. And they were very, you know, that's what you can do. You be a photographer, you know, photographer is a job. It's, it's not necessarily a stable job, but you know, I think they thought I was good at it and therefore I would be good at it. And that would be a career. And that's when I started wavering. So it wasn't, I was always, I was always the child in the class who knew exactly what they wanted to do. Whereas a lot of children, oh, vet, you know, I was going to be a fashion designer and then sixth form, I was going to be a photographer. And then I went to foundation art in Leeds and was going to be a photographer and, you know, was super, super focused on it and then got to uni and was like, oh no, this is not what I want to do at all. I was bored out of my mind. It felt, you know, and, and, and I, I was doing very well at the course and that was sort of what put me off. That I didn't feel like I was trying very hard and was doing well. And I thought, oh, I don't really want to be here. I want a challenge. Um, and then went on to, U to Newcastle Uni and did English and art. But all of that time, there was no, like, I, I really don't think I recognised, like, an entrepreneurial spirit in myself at all. Looking back now, I see that I rejected loads of rules and I rejected the boundaries and rejected the way that things were sort of set up. But that didn't translate to like an entrepreneurial spirit until early 20s, I would say, when I started creating this jewellery, basically, and selling it. It was like, ah, oh, people like this, <laughs> you know. It sounds like you are a natural entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> by by uh, It's not by omission, but just by defi definition of like mm. all of those examples that you've come through. Yeah. Um, so not surprising as you you are doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, maybe touch on some of your you know challenges along that way of obviously you know, startup language you know pivots, um, but from a you know setting a course, but actually you know what realizing this isn't the right way and you know that recognition and realignment. Maybe just sort of touch on some of that. So I think, you know, we talked really briefly before about the education system, and I think very much in the UK, there is no room for that. I was very, very fortunate that my parents were such believers in university and getting a degree that I think, I think they were both first generations, a first of their sort of families to go to uni, and it was hugely important that we all went to uni. And so for me to be miserable and say, I can't do this course anymore... I wouldn't have been able to go on to a new degree without their support. And, you know, the, the general sort of education system doesn't really allow for people to, to swap and change. It's not like in the US where you can choose like five different things and then you major and minor. Like it's, you know what it's like, you very much, you choose your GCSEs and you choose your A-levels and then you choose your degree and then you choose your tiny specialist moment out of one tiny thing that you become good at. And then 
even if you go to art school and become sort of, you know, designer, you have to be a T-shaped designer where you're really, really good at one thing and then everything else you're okay at. And there was this constant just... I felt like I was being squished in and squished in and squished in, constantly trying to push out of this, like, path that I felt like I was being squeezed into. And, yeah, I think I spent many years... Um, I think my mum calls it, like, just sort of in the wilderness. Like, I had jobs. What, what age? Between... So I must have graduated when I was about 23. And then until about 28, I was working in art galleries as an education person, sort of school trips and that. And I always had a job and I was always working full time, but I was not happy. And I was bored or frustrated and I always knew there was something else I was supposed to do, but I didn't know what it was and I couldn't see it. I could not see this creative world. Like, I, I, so I because I used to work around here and I used to go past like all of these studios and think that's where I want to be working but I couldn't fit myself into these boxes that already existed themselves I knew that I wasn't that good a designer even though I knew I had the ideas I knew I didn't want to go into advertising because I didn't want to sell shampoo to people who didn't want it and I just never found this way of expressing myself until I realised, oh, you just need to create it yourself. And like, I think I really needed that. I needed to be told that, to be given like the permission to be able to just be like, no, you do it. Like, it's not going to happen for you. And so those wilderness years, like as challenging and frustrating as they were, that's why I think I can work so hard today. And I can, and I've got such conviction in what I'm doing because I know what the other side's like. I know what it's like to be in a sort of so-called creative environment and really, like, there is no creativity in it whatsoever. You're basically enabling other people's creativity or you're working to somebody else's arbitrary boundaries. And, yeah, that I found really challenging. And the challenges today are completely different. They're really... It's mostly... Whenever I feel challenged now in the past three years, it's that I haven't learnt something... Mm or I can learn it, like, finance has been, like, a huge challenge for me. And still I, like, reject these, like, I try, try, but I know I'm not allowed. I try and reject these, like, rules. Like, why do I have to report every, you know, month to the trustees? Why can't they just trust I'm doing it? Or why do I have to make sure that this fits in this and this and this? And why do I have to file... Why do I have to pay taxes? (laughs) I'll do that. (laughs) I agree with tax. Um, but, like, why do I have to file a trademark so people don't copy our name? Like, why can't they just not copy it? You know, it's all of these things that, like, I find really frustrating. But, I mean, I guess it's part of being an adult, but a lot of it as well... You Wait, s- which part's being an adult? I don't know. <laughs> Trademarking. I don't know. But, like, you know, reporting to things. I find them all, you know... I don't mean to sound pompous and like I know best because I know that a lot of these things are there for a reason because things need regulating, but uh, I, find, I, do, I find it very, very challenging. But you're a charity? Not yet. You're not? Because um, the Charity Commission has rejected our name. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so what is your legal status? We're a charitable organisation, so we're... Which means? So we're, we're a company. Yeah. But we're so we're a registered company, but we're also in order to receive charitable donations, which we do, we're under a charitable umbrella. Okay. So it happens to lots of organisations when they first start, is that like a big a bigger charity umbrella, so like social change directory or SIVA, which we're under, basically um, collects the money for us and regulates the fact that we're not spending it on 
champagne or whatever and also means that um we have like a sort of advice to look to mm. and it just means we're regulated basically so hence the trustees yeah well i mean at this point i wouldn't have to have trustees because we're not technically uh, i would have to have directors but i could have been the director but i just think it's good it's good practice to start from the beginning and they've been invaluable it's three women who are completely like have all the skills that i don't and really sort of support and encourage me in a way that i think i would have found really really hard um by myself so mentors uh, yeah is, i mean every everything they're they're my mentor uh, yeah they're yeah. my mentors but i also have another mentor and another mentor and i mean how many mentors do i actually have i think i've got about three that is, they are like that's the thing that I would not be here without. Like these older women, basically, they're not always older. Actually, just women telling me, giving me advice and listening and letting me bounce things off. And there's this amazing community, like among like creatives as well, that have just given me such lifts and so, so many connections and so many ideas. What's the community? It's just, as in, it doesn't, it's not a thing. It's the the community at large. Yeah, like the feminist community, I guess. Yeah. Um, Like every time I go to like an event, I know at least three women there. Like, for example, I was at a dinner last night with Liv Little, who created Galdem. And... Who's been on the podcast. Yes, yes. We just launched last week. Yes, she's amazing. For example, so a creative woman like her, who's not in the exact same industry as me, but is powering change. Um, or um, who else is there? You know, a career coach who I work with called Janine, who's, you know, never really worked in like periods or anything like that before, but has amazing business and government knowledge. Or, you know, my trustees who will have all sorts of charity knowledge and that kind of thing. And yeah, that's all this community, I guess. And everyone's very supportive and knows each other very well. And it's all, that's sort of like a real safety net for an organisation like mine, which is small and is punching above its weight, basically, hugely. Um, yeah, that's that's how I'm able to stay sane, I think, mm. anyway. Yeah, yeah, understood. So the Charity Commission rejected your name? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's offensive. Um, not bloody, period, with bloody is offensive. Uh, but we're, we're, like, we're not giving up. Like, it's... You know, and there are other reasons. That's not the only reason. But, I mean, that's just the most telling thing that I think is just... Wow, you know. I can feel you, like, tense up. I'm so... It is... Ready for the fight. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm so... laughs> I mean, it's been suggested that we've, like, register as BGP and then just trade as bloody good period. But I don't want to do that. Like, I want the Charities Commission to have to say the word period. It's not a dirty word. I'm not asking them to say something disgusting. I'm asking them to consider a part of um, the female body that has, because of the shame that they're perpetuating, means we have to set up a charity about it. I don't want to run a period charity. Like, we shouldn't be genuine. I really passionately believe I shouldn't have to do this. It should not be down to, you know like, young women who are doing other stuff. You know, I should be a lawyer, making, making loads of money or something, or working in advertising. You'd be bored being a lawyer. Sure, I would be really <laughs> bored. But, you know, 
it, sh- it shouldn't fall to women to be creating these things because of shame, because of the perpetuation of this shame and stigma that is then being perpetuated by them saying we can't do it. Like, we're going to crack on. I mean, I literally have my fists ready. Like, I'm going for the fight. They're going to say period. And they're going to say bloody good period as well. <laughs> Look forward to that day. Yeah. <laughs> um, comedy. Mm. You touched on it earlier. Yeah. Often a good format to broach complex topics. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about your relationship with comedy. I think I'm not sure when I realised how much I loved it and how much how much value I put on being funny. But I definitely wasn't always funny. Like it's not it's not always been a part of me. I don't think. But there's something about as well like. The, the Jewish humour as well, obviously really well known in like New York and I guess around the world for like our culture's ability to laugh at things that are really, really difficult. And I think that is what comes naturally to me firstly. My dad's a very funny man and I think I've probably picked that up from him. But realising that comedy was the thing that got people talking was like, that that was the turning point for me. And I think that was on my master's where... I hadn't really really... I think I, what I did, I, we had to do lots of different interventions. And I'd done a project where I created a sort of museum archive because that's what I was doing. I was working in museums. So I created a fake museum archive, which was about the... Remember the Protein World um, advert, mm-hmm. Beach Body Ready? It was around that time and there was loads of uproar about it. So I created a, an archive that, as though we were in a museum in, I think it was like 2050 or something. And this was the last remaining piece of um, uh, this advertising because it had been defaced and it had and created this whole narrative around this idea of it and brought it in and presented it. And then my tutor was like, and so, you know, you've been using comedy. And I was like, what? I, it, hadn't, it hadn't considered that it was an actual, like, uh, what's the word, like, way of working to me. And that's when I started to be like, oh, yeah, no, that's what I do. <laughs> like... That's how I do this. That's how I show up. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I don't know how else to do it. Um, and it was around the time that all of these, like, female comedians were starting to come up and, you know, were really starting to gather steam. And I did lots when of... When was this? So this was, like, 2014. So even, like, if you watched, like, a Live at the Apollo from, like, I don't know when it started, but, like, 2012 compared to now... It's completely different. And even the content of things that women talk about on stage is completely different. Um, so what's the point there? Just uh, in terms what is of, my point? Um, no, in terms of comedy as a... As you a, talk about live as Apollo. This yeah. is as an entertainment channel. Yeah, but, that, but that's... To, yeah. To, to, to confront or to uh, you know, address... Yeah. But that's what these comedians these are doing. These sort of difficult topics. So maybe not someone like Michael McIntyre, for example, you know. But then, you know, the, a comedian like... Um, I don't want to just name the ones that I love. I'm trying to think of, like, somebody else. But, like, Nish Kumar, for ex- not that I don't love him, but, for example, he talks a lot about, like, racism and Brexit. And he does it by being funny. He makes people think about the way that we look at race or we look at, like, politics today. And how ridiculous it is. And how ridiculous it is, exactly. And then someone like Jen Brister, who talks about, like, female bodies or being a lesbian or being a mother or, you know, just periods, and makes... Again, she turns it on its head. There's a ridiculousness about it. And that's what really appealed to me. It was the idea that 
like periods aren't ridiculous the way we view them is and I felt like the only way to do that was through comedy it it just felt that was something that was really missing from the movement in a way it wasn't a movement yet that's why it felt like there was something missing from there was no joy in the things that we were talking about or the only times that I heard periods talked about in a charitable concept was on the back of toilets where you saw some poverty porn about a sad woman in Africa who couldn't afford a pad like that goes right past me I don't want to think about that I am bombarded day in day out with sad stories depressing stories and that not I'm not trying to say that I'm insensitive or I don't care but that kind of branding now is is done you know, I, I, I don't want to other a woman, you know. I mean, not only is comedy, you talk about difficult things, but it brings joy. If you're being made to laugh, you feel a bit better than if you're being made to feel guilty. Like, our real policy of, like, you know, fundraising, we never, never make people feel guilty. We never make people feel sad. We don't try and wring anything out of people. We say, like, this is outrageous. Have a good time. Now give us some money if you want. Like, I just think it's... For me, I just think it's a more comfortable way of doing things. I don't know. I don't know if like that's just natural to me, that I'd rather make people laugh and then try and get my point across. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but whatever it is, it's completely invaluable in the work that we do. And like, as soon as it becomes, or if it ever became sort of depressing, I don't think, I don't think any of us would want to do it anymore, you know? This has been fantastic. Uh, informative, enlightening, inspiring. And so two final questions. One, what's the best way of anybody contacting you? Our website is the sort of best way. So bloodygoodperiod.com. And if you want to donate, you just click donate and go to that page. And you can either um, send cash or find our address to send pads, or you can just do a click through to our wish list and you just buy it there and then. Um, you buy pads, you buy toiletries, it's so easy. And similarly, if you want to volunteer, especially in London and some of the other big cities, you just go to the volunteer page, fill in a form. But if you're more interested in the conversation around periods, then our, our socials are probably the best place to go. So at Bloody Good Period on Instagram, at Bloody Good underscore underscore on Twitter, because Bloody Good was taken and Bloody Good Period didn't fit. Um, or on Facebook, but... Um, yeah, I mean, this will probably come out um, after our comedy night, but we've got a big, big comedy night on the 19th of September um, where it just epitomises everything we do, basically. But we always have events, and other people run us events. And for anyone who really wants to find out how to support us the best way, I would say have something like a period party, have like a brunch, have a supper club, and just raise a bit of money and actually just have a conversation. Because those conversations are the things that just they push everything so much further than just sitting there on your own on Instagram, looking at a picture of a period, basically. Got it. <laughs> uh, and is there anybody else you would like to hear on the show? Ooh. Doesn't have to be one person. Hmm. So a good friend of mine who I call my work wife is called Shay Akawowo, and she's created this amazing organisation called Glitch, and it's all about um, ending online abuse. Um, but it's done in a really sort of brilliant way. She's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. So I'd love to hear it. I'd actually love, 
as a friend, I don't know how much I actually know about her growth as an organisation, so I'd love to hear that. But, yeah, I mean, I... Sounds great. Yeah, I think she's probably the one. Okay, yeah, cool. she's going to go mad at me for booking her in for more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Gabby, this has been amazing. Um, thanks so much for being part of Stories Thank of Growth. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too.